0: for it at all, or any of these other hints. He would reproach me with one of the looks I knew so well, that withering straight-arrow glance that felt as if it could pierce a man's soul. You knew the terms, it seemed to say, absolute confidentiality. Not that there was any real need for his concern. How could there be when the cases themselves contained so much that was acutely painful to me? "'Matters of such darkness and depravity could never be considered material for fiction, let alone a history. "'Especially when any such history would inevitably take me back through the years "'to that awful afternoon on a beach near Dunbar, where we found Elsbeth. "'Here was, I suppose, the true beginning of our story, "'when the doctor stood by the waves and declared his fight against the future. "'The words may sound foolish unless you know all that prompted them.' for me then as we both recognized how profoundly we had failed and all that must lie ahead in our own branch of interest it was the very least he could have said i was a young man then only nineteen and in the second year of my medical degree at edinburgh where i had met the doctor about six months previously It is true there were problems in my family, but even so I had everything to live for until that moment on the beach, all those years ago, seemed for a time to bring my life to an end. Until now, that was the worst moment, so unbearable that I have usually tried to avoid thinking of it, but in general nobody could have such experiences as I had with a doctor in my younger years and not return to them. They would come to me while I was sailing on the Arctic whaler Hope, the first expedition I ever took, or when I stood alone in the evening air outside the Tennyson Road house in South Norwood, which I bought years later after I abandoned medicine for good. I would reflect on each extraordinary episode with Bell, considering what it told me about my fellow humanity and about the darkness within my own sex. No full accounts were ever compiled of our cases, but the truth was I had not been entirely true to my pledge. For each of them I still held boxes containing records of a kind, a map worked and reworked, diagrams, objects, odd hieroglyphs and puzzles and clues which reflected for me and no one else the intimate details of each adventure. I came to think of these materials as my murder-rooms although one box, containing all that led up to that beach and followed on from it, has remained at the back, unopened. Naturally, I never attempted to explain these relics from years ago to anyone, not even Louise, my wife, when she was still in good health, though she often saw me studying some of the boxes and adding small details. The assumption, of course, was that I was planning a story, an assumption that now, in a way I never dreamed, almost comes true. But before I write, I must be clear about what has happened this autumn and why I am taking this step now. I will not pretend it has been a happy year, for despite my success there has been much inner turbulence in my life. But when two weeks ago I took Louise for a drive in the Lander, up on the heathland north of Hindhead, I had no idea of what was coming.' Both of us share a love of this lonely and somewhat uncharacteristic stretch of wild country running above the home we built in the hope the air would improve her health. Since first setting eyes on it, the countryside here has reminded me of my native Scotland with its glens and valleys. But that day we did not travel far, for as we came on to the spur that is known locally as White Hill owing to its frosts, Louise began coughing.' It went on a few minutes only, and, though she insisted we go on, I could see how glad she was when we turned for home. There I sat beside her bed for half an hour, and was relieved at last to watch her sleep. I waited a little before coming down to my study, a room with broad windows offering a view of the woods behind the house. I sat down at my desk, and then I noticed the small brown paper package. It had been placed at the corner of my desk, as late deliveries often are. I received a great deal of post, but there was something different about this parcel, perhaps because it was done up very elaborately with yards of knotted string. It bore my typewritten address, and the postmark was Bristol, a city I barely know. After observing these details, I ignored it for an hour while I worked, but I think even then it gave me a tiny sense of unease. There was something so painstaking and excessive about those intricate lengths of string winding around it. As I worked I found myself reflecting that it was too thin to be a book, yet too broad and wide to be a personal item like my watch, which was soon due back from its annual clean. Eventually, while I was drinking my late morning tea, I took up the package. Cutting the string, I pulled the layers of brown paper back— All I could see were several pages torn from a periodical. I picked them up and stared at a familiar illustration of a woman removing her veil. This was an early Holmes story of mine, published in the Strand magazine in the winter of 1892. Naturally, I supposed it had been sent for my autograph, though it was the first time I had ever been asked to sign loose pages. I leafed through them, and soon reached the last illustration which shows the detective holding a candle aloft in front of the stricken villain. I could find no accompanying letter at all. There was nothing else here, absolutely no indication of who had sent this or why. My first assumption was that there must be something in the pages themselves which might explain the parcel a typographic flaw perhaps, or some other oddity that a reader had thought I would be interested to see myself. And so it was that I put my work aside and scanned the Holmes Adventure, the speckled band, for the first time in years. What struck me most reading it after so long was its sheer wish-fulfillment. This may seem a strange expression to use of a story in which a sadistic stepfather attempts to murder his stepdaughter in the night by sending a poisonous swampadder down a bell-rope into her room. But in my heart I know well enough that wish-fulfillment is indeed what gives it life. And anyone aware of the events I witnessed at Abbey Mill in Hampshire in 1882, after I had left Edinburgh and started out as a doctor, Events which began with the eye condition of my patient Heather Grace would see at once why I use the word. Not that the connection is obvious in any banal way. I went to some trouble to change, soften, and simplify those terrible events, and also to rework them into what I would have wished. The model for the stepfather, Dr. Grimesby Roylett, for example, was a landowner and natural historian called Charles Blythe who was uncle and guardian to my patient, and who did indeed keep snakes and other poisonous creatures. But how often I have had occasion to wish that the truth about the whole affair had more closely resembled the fiction! Having no desire to return to reflections of this kind, I turned the pages in front of me more rapidly, but they appeared to be from a perfectly ordinary edition of the magazine— There was nothing remarkable about them at all that I could see, and I could think of absolutely no reason why they had been sent. I was on the point of throwing them away when I saw the writing. I had missed it partly because I had not looked closely at the last page, and partly because the tiny ink letters had been placed with such meticulous care. They were on the minuscule white line— marking the top of the stepfather's table in the very last illustration, where the man is found dead and seated bolt upright, the fearful snake clamped like a yellow band round his head. I took my magnifying glass to be sure, but once seen I could read them anyway. Harn House, Alton Road, Harrow. That meant nothing to me at all. It was an ordinary enough address, in an area where I knew nobody— and I could hardly avoid reflecting that some care had gone into the placing and the execution of this lettering. Naturally, I now went through the whole text again, casting a detailed eye and a magnifying glass on all the illustrations. But I found nothing else. If this was a clue to the sending of the package, it was the only one. That evening Louise did not feel well enough to get up for dinner— and I read some of Wells's story, The Invisible Man, to her in her room. Later downstairs, as I drank a glass of port, I cast my eye over the pages again, debating what to do with them. My curiosity was certainly aroused, but I was also aware that the thing could easily have come from a half-crazed admirer of my work— If I visited the address and was greeted by some crackpot who saw himself as a detective, or worse, a master criminal, and hoped to employ me in his self-publicizing schemes—